Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound Off with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. ByteDance says they're going to have a TikTok IPO within a year. The latest on TikTok and Cepheus, all of that, plus new hope for fiscal stimulus. And Joe Biden gets ready to unveil his own economic plan. We have the live, the deep dive on that, plus my exclusive interview with Ken Cuccinelli. What does it mean for escalating tensions between the U.S. and China? Lots to get through. Coming up, we're going to have the latest on that TikTok uh, developments as well as what's going on with the fiscal stimulus. But earlier this week, I spoke to Ken Cuccinelli. He, of course, is the acting Homeland Security Deputy Secretary. And I asked him about the government's plan to possibly seize all cotton imports from China's Xinjiang region. This would be a move to penalize Beijing for the treatment of the minority Uyghur group. And well, take a listen, take a listen to the conversation. You have just announced some incredibly important measures known as withholding release orders for China in response to the Communist Party of China's uh, human rights abuses against the Uyghur Muslim minorities. Explain to us, sir, what you did. So specifically, it isn't just because the Communist Party of China is running concentration camps with Uyghurs and others, um, what they consider dissidents. Um, but that we have targeted specific facilities and specific companies who we have more than enough evidence to demonstrate are participating in the slave labor uh, effort of the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, one of the withhold release orders, which we refer to as WROs, uh, is directed at a Chinese Communist Party entity. It is a what they call a vocational education center what we call a concentration camp. And uh, they are providing, that's Lop County number four, if you look at the list of the WROs, they're providing slave labor to two other entities in the same industrial park, which the Customs Border Protection, CBP, has also issued WROs against. So the total value of the trade involved here is around $400 million annually. Um, and uh, this is, what I would uh, call the continuation 
of uh, investigations that have been run by the U.S. government and our partners. Uh, we, we refer to you all in the media, the information you gather, uh, as well as uh, we work with our partners like the Australians and uh, who have been really aggressive in this area and NGOs to gather the information necessary to demonstrate facility by facility, company by company, that they're using this slave labor for their own profit and to the disadvantage of American workers and businesses. The overwhelming majority of cotton uh, exports from China are come from the Xinjiang region uh, yes. and the U.S., uh, a considerable amount of, of cotton uh, that the U.S. Uh, gets into the country uh, comes from the Xinjiang region. How, how would these WROs impact the cotton market? So the biggest hit of the five WROs is actually on a computer manufacturer um, and uh, to their credit, uh, through the course of this process, Lenovo, uh, one of the firms you would recognize, uh, disentangled itself from that provider in terms of imports to the United States. So this is already having an effect. Uh, there are cotton providers, Jungar Cotton and others, um, and we continue to look at um, the whole region because this entire region is really operated very heavily under this slave labor, forced labor regime. And we're doing the, the analysis of the possibility of a region-wide WRO in cotton. And to your point, Kevin, 85% of China's cotton production can trace back to the Xinjiang province. So that would be a huge, huge change. We're also, by the way, working on technology that in the not too distant future will allow us to identify whether a particular product traces its cotton back to that uh, region, along with I other wanna, products. I want to get to technology in a second, but just sticking with, with textiles, sticking with, with cotton just for a second, because the impact that that would have, that regional WRO would have uh, on, on the retail industry, uh, on on uh, retail retailers across the country and the supply chain in particular, as well as contact tracing technology in order right. to track cotton as well. Uh, you know this. I mean, uh, uh, many U.S. businesses are, are carefully watching and monitoring uh, what that WRO would look like. Are you factoring in the economic impact that it would have on U.S. businesses uh, in in your investigation? A no is the short answer. Um, in a, to the longer answer is yes. Uh, if you look back a few months, we issued a business advisory, the Department of Homeland Security, together with the Departments of State, Labor, and Treasury, and really broadcast to the business community the major problems in with doing business with a supply chain that reaches into the Xinjiang province. And um, so we really do want to encourage businesses to disentangle themselves uh, with these human rights abuses, recognizing they don't all have perfect transparency uh, into their own supply chains. And so what we have seen in part is a greater effort on the part of respectable businesses to determine that question and to make adjustments. I mentioned Lenovo, for instance, yeah. as one example in the computer arena. It will have a significant impact as we continue to expand the investigations and efforts in the cotton and textile industry. Um, and in fact, let's face it, that's the point, right? Is that Americans don't wanna be doing business and do, don't wanna be consumers even entangled with this sort of slave labor with these concentration camps. 
and uh, the WROs are designed to break that connection. And before I get to technology, just what is your message to the American consumer who is purchasing uh, hair extension products, who is purchasing uh, uh, clothing, cotton clothing? What should, should they know uh, when they make those purchases? Well, you know, we don't necessarily expect people to figure out the supply chain of every product they work on, but the best thing they can do is if as most Americans do, they feel strongly against the use of slave labor, of forced labor, that they let that be known because businesses that they buy from will respond to them. And uh, look, we all know this, any of us who've been in the private sector, uh, the customer is always right is a, is a ancient mantra. And with enough customer pressure, a businesses change their course, even if they aren't themselves inclined to do so. Now I will say, that our experience is that when educated, uh, the vast majority of American-based businesses uh, do want to extricate themselves from these relationships. To your earlier point, Kevin, that can be challenging for them. Uh, nonetheless, uh, which includes driving prices up and other, there are other factors and we have to accept that that's going to happen. But the price goes up um, because we drive them to a, to a fair market as opposed to using slave labor. Um, the, the point of slave labor is to gain a price advantage and to oppress the people involved. And both of those things happen to the disadvantage of our workers and our businesses. Um, and I believe, and the president strongly believes that American consumers are willing to accept the disruption and to accept somewhat higher prices to avoid slave labor. That was my interview from earlier this week with Ken Cuccinelli. He, of course, is the acting Homeland Security Deputy Secretary, and we talked a lot about uh, exports, textiles, and what impact that would have on the supply chain, especially for uh, retailers all across the country. They're still uh, analyzing just the effect that that would have should they have that withholding release order over the entire Xinjiang region because of the human rights abuses that are um, occurring against the Uyghur Muslim minorities in the Xinjiang region. Coming up, we talk about the economy. Robert Shapiro joins us. He's advised virtually every single Democratic candidate in the past several decades. And we're going to ask him about Joe Biden's economic plan, as well as what's going on in the markets and the continued uh, stock slumps most in the week uh, with the market trap. We're going to get a complete market trap from our friend Robert Shapiro. Download the Bloomberg Sounds On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Amazon.com, uh, Radio.com, and Spotify, and wherever you get your uh, Bloomberg. Did you see this? I just got this headline. I saw it on the social media feeds. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey of Dumb and Dumber. Great, great movie. Jim Carrey's going to play Joe Biden Saturday Night Live. Can't make it up. Cannot make it up. I'll be watching. I will be watching. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. 
At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Tomorrow, I'm going to check in with Senator Chris Coons, Democrat, Delaware. He's friendly with Joe Biden, who, of course, is the Democratic presidential nominee for president. Let's get a check on the markets. U.S. stocks fell and treasuries gained as investors mulled whether the levels of stimulus being provided are enough amid a gradual economic recovery. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, the benchmark S&P 500 dropped for a second day, though it found some support after bouncing off its 50-day moving average. Technology shares were the biggest decliners with Apple Facebook and Microsoft weighing on the Nasdaq composite. Investors snapped up long-term treasuries, capturing a brief spike higher in the yields following the Federal Reserve's policy decision on Wednesday. All right. So I say all of that because I want to bring in our next guest, Robert Shapiro. Robert Shapiro is chairman of Sonicon and former senior economic advisor for Democratic presidential candidates, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Mr. Shapiro, welcome back to the program. What happened in the markets today? Well, the markets basically liked what the Fed said, and but also took caution from what the Fed said. What the Fed said uh, was they were going to keep interest rates very low for at least two to three more years. And that's... On the one hand, markets like low interest rates, particularly stock markets, um, because you can't get anything from bonds when interest rates are that low. Um, on the other hand, they recognize what it means. And what it means is that uh, the Fed sees structural damage to the economy that will take several years to repair. And that's not so great for profits. So... Um, it's a it's a mixed message. Um, it is interesting, incidentally. You know, this is what the Fed and the econ- economists who follow it call forward guidance. We're going to tell you what we're going to do in the future. This is a total reversal of many, many, many decades of uh, Fed policy. The Fed used to be incredibly secretive. The view was that if they said what they were going to do, then the markets would, in effect, um, offset it and take it into account before they actually did it. And so consequently, they tried to be mysterious. Um, And um, the Fed has, under Janet Yellen, they shifted to forward guidance saying, look, 
everybody knows we're in a very tough period, and what we need to do is give assurance to the markets that will give us a little more stability. And we got some economic indicators today, Mr. Shapiro. The number of Americans applying for jobless benefits resumed its decline, signaling a gradual improvement in the battered labor market. Uh, The number of people who uh, in regular state programs for jobless claims decreased by 33,000 to 860,000 Americans in the week that ended September 12th which coincides uh, with the reference period for the government's monthly jobs report. Continuing claims with the total number of Americans on state benefit rolls, rolls uh, fell by almost 1 million to 12.6 million in the week that ended uh, September 5th. So I, I want to get your reaction to that, but our uh, Bloomberg economist, Eliza Winger, wrote, the recovery in the labor market appears to be slowing but not reversing. Still, jobs data remains well shy of the pre-pandemic peak and well-targeted fiscal aid is needed to sustain momentum in spending through year end and into 2021. So they, I mean, all of this says that they need, they need more fiscal stimulus coming from D.C., Absolutely. They need more fiscal stimulus. They need to support spending by tens of millions of households. They need to support the continued operations of hundreds of thousands of businesses. Uh, This economy, I mean, look, 860,000 or whatever it was in the last week um, is better than when it was 1 million to 1.2 or 3 million per week. But over 800,000 new unemployment claims in a week would be would have been catastrophic news at any other time. Um, it's still greater than what we saw in the financial crisis with the exception of a couple weeks. So this is a very injured economy we're dealing with now. Uh, you know, I, um, I, I was just looking at some data and at manufacturing jobs. And, you know, until um, February, Trump had a decent record on manufacturing jobs, had added uh, a couple hundred thousand jobs brought since January 2017. And today... He's 250,000 jobs below January 2017. So it not only wiped out all the progress done in manufacturing jobs under him, it wiped out almost all the progress made uh, in manufacturing jobs um, in the last four years of the Obama administration. So this is... So you're wiping out seven years of job gains in manufacturing. Why um, is that? I mean, is that is that, uh, and I say this respectfully. I mean, is that because of structural changes, regardless of which political party occupies the uh, the White House? Um, no, it's it's because of damage that's been done recently um, to the now. If you mean, would it have? Um, would it have happened uh, under a Democratic president? Well, there would have been certainly some losses. Right. But 
Um, I think there are very few people who are not who don't work for either the administration or the Republican Party who would claim that the management of this crisis by by this administration um, has been not only terrible but consequently imposed much greater economic costs than if like every other advanced country we had taken the steps both by government and as a society uh, to bring this under control a lot sooner all right so let me ask you this let me let me let me get your your uh your, get get on your prediction cap. Do you think that there will okay. be there will be more fiscal stimulus? And we only got like ninety seconds left. Do you think there's going to be more fiscal stimulus uh, before the November third election, or is it going to wait until after the the results of the election? I think there will be more fiscal stimulus. Yes, I think there'll be more stimulus before the election, and I okay. think in fact the White House is trying to time it uh, so that the stimulus hits. You know, in in the last month um, before the election, to do so, they need to reach a deal in the next couple of weeks, in All the right. next two weeks. All right. um, there will also be more if, um, yeah. uh, particularly if uh, Vice President Biden is elected, there'll be more, much more fiscal stimulus. Much more. Uh, yeah. Uh, in uh, Jan- starting in January, which is exactly what the Fed has said. It needs. All right. We're going to leave it there. Robert Shapiro, chairman of Sonicon, a former senior economic advisor for Democratic presidential candidates, including former presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, whose new memoir, two-part memoir, is going to come out after November 3rd in the week right before Thanksgiving. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. The latest on TikTok and U.S.-China relations, plus the complete markets wrap, and the need for more fiscal stimulus. Are they going to get it? All of that, plus Joe Biden unveils a new economic plan ahead of his town hall tonight, and we check in with one Republican from Arizona in a state that now could turn blue. A lot to get through. Let's start with the economy tonight, folks. This ahead of Joe Biden, the Democratic uh, presidential nominee. He's speaking in that town hall. CNN Town Hall tonight is going to talk about the economy. So here's where things stand. The Nasdaq 100 sank as much as 2.8% on Thursday, dragged down by a slump in the mega cap technology stocks that have powered this year's rebound. Uh, And the slide came after the Fed policymakers pledged to keep interest rates low until inflation averages over 2%, while failing to give any fresh details 
on the central bank's bond buying plans. All right, so that's what's happening with the Fed and the markets. And then we got some new economic indicators from uh, jobless claims because jobless claims in regular state programs decreased by 33,000 to 860,000 in the week that ended September 12th. That happens to coincide with the reference period for the government's monthly jobs report, according to the Labor Department figures released earlier today. Um, so it's still below a million, which is still rather difficult to, to wrap your head around when it's we're talking in literally a million per week people fly, filing for jobless claims. And even during the peak of the 2008 recession, that was not uh, it wasn't even near there. But regardless, that's where things stand. And it also is where things stand because the central bank, Wall Street, Main Street, everyone's pushing for there to be more fiscal stimulus to come out of Washington, D.C. And Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, who uh, was asked about this uh, and take a listen to what she said today. The fact is we want to have an agreement and we will stay until we have an agreement. So I interpret that based upon the conversations that I had yesterday with the Problem Solvers Caucus, Republicans and Democrats, as her starting to feel some of the pressure and not just Speaker Pelosi, the Democrats, but also Republican leadership as well, starting to feel some of the pressure that there needs to be more fiscal stimulus at some point, And it likely is going to have to happen before the November third election. Matt Brooks returns to the program. He is a Republican strategist and also the executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition and Joel Rubin, Democratic strategist and the former deputy assistant secretary for legislative affairs at the State Department. Matt, are we getting fiscal stimulus? Yeah, we will get some fiscal stimulus, Kevin. As, as, if you recall when we were last on with, with uh, Joel, in fact, you know, I made the point that this is a lot like the government shutdown. And right. the interesting dynamic is this gets more and more like the government shutdown because we're heading toward another possible government shutdown if they don't get the, the spending bill taken care of. So everything is coming together. Um, I think this is pure politics on the part of the, uh, of the Democrats. Neither um, Senate Leader Schumer nor uh, Speaker Pelosi, who have had ample opportunities to negotiate a deal, uh, have taken the steps to to meet the um, uh, Republicans halfway at all. Uh, Mark Meadows and Steve Mnuchin have literally been camped out in Congress, uh, in the halls of Congress, trying to get a deal. Uh, and the Democrats have refused to play ball, and that's the, the biggest reason why we don't have any uh, stimulus uh, bill right now. All right, Joel. I mean, for, in terms of, of there being just a, a very narrow path for fiscal stimulus, do you think that when you hear Speaker Pelosi make those comments that, they, that they're they going to stay until they have an agreement, that's a big, big sign that they're going to get something before the election? Yeah, Kevin, I, it, it seems like we're turning a bit of a corner. And, and actually, I, I, I think, Matt, uh, it was it was me who said that it was going to come before the end of September, not you. But no. Wow, here I, we go. I'm joking. I'm joking. Here we and go. We, we both agreed. We both agreed. Uh, on that, at least. And, and um, I, you know, I, I think, frankly, they have to get it done before the end of, of, of the month, because then they want to get home and they want to politic. And the last thing they want to do is to go home and say that you should return me to Congress when I didn't get anything done for you. Uh, but the interesting dynamic is that President Trump seems to be the one who's finally realizing 
that needs to get done. And he's off the golf course, and he is deciding to publicly tell Republicans that they need to move off of their their extreme bill that that they they haven't been able to get passed even in their own chamber uh, and negotiate with the Democrats who've had a bill through the House since May. So hopefully they're going to get something done. Hopefully the president weighs in and and Americans need this money. I mean, these job numbers that you're citing are not good news uh, when nearly a million people are filing for unemployment every month. Uh, this country is, is again, on the verge of, of another economic collapse. We just averted one because of the last major stimulus programs that were bipartisan. We need to get that done uh, ASAP and hopefully, yes, before the end of this month. Yeah, it, it's, you know, and, and I've, I've always been very skeptical about this notion that there's not going to be fiscal stimulus by the end of the year. I am somewhat skeptical that there wouldn't be some type of stimulus, maybe not what everybody wants, but some type of stimulus by by the November 3rd election. I mean, Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, Senator John Kennedy, a Republican from Louisiana, he was asked about, you know, whether or not Republicans are 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 really willing to be on the hook for funding some of these state and local governments, because this has been one of the thorniest sticking points for Republicans, for conservatives like Senator John Kennedy, and whether or not Republicans should have to bail out some of these more, uh, some of these states that have not been able to 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 have their fiscal house in order. That's the conservative argument. Take a listen to Senator John Kennedy. I don't want to do anything to hurt state and local government, but state and local government's not my priority right now. We already gave them $150 billion. My priority is people and small businesses. So, Matt Brooks, how do you get the Republicans like Senator Kennedy to go on board with some of the moderates like like uh, Congressman Tom Reed uh, of New York? Look, I think that's going to happen organically. I think that... that I think that what Senator Kennedy is saying is he makes a lot of valid concerns, and it's it's a it's a you know a vein that runs through uh, a lot of folks in the Republican caucus in the House and Senate. But ultimately, going to to Joel's point, uh, this is about helping people, and I think the real politic of an impending election in 47 days. Uh, and people really hurting and none of these guys wanting to have to go back to their states or their districts uh, without some sort of uh, bill to, to help them, uh, I think is yeah. what's ultimately going to drive this to the finish line. You know what I like, what I think is interesting, and I actually think it could be in the final bill based upon the conversations that I have, but what do I know? Uh, it's what the Problem Solvers Caucus uh put out yesterday. I'm going to call it the fiddler on the roof clause. It's both a sunrise and a sunset clause in March. <laughs> Stay with me. Stay with me. You know, because if if come March the science says, hey, the the virus is is receding, then they take away some of the the fiscal stimulus that kicks in. They 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 sunset it. But if the virus isn't going in the direction that we hope, then they then it automatically increases to avoid another drama you know, for political theater. Look at my puns today, team. My the political theater coming from from Capitol Hill. So that sunrise sunset clause could happen uh, in the uh, in the final talks. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Fiddler on the Roof. Just kidding. Uh, for uh, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company 
just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We've got two geopolitical experts for the panel, uh, and we're going to finish that conversation on fiscal stimulus with Congressman uh, with with Congressman uh, Schweikert coming up a uh, Republican from Arizona. But I do want to talk geopolitics with our panel because they're just so good at it. Matt Brooks, Republican strategist, executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition, and Joel Rubin, Democratic strategist and former deputy assistant secretary for legislative affairs at the State Department. All right. Big Big week for the Middle East, Joel. They got some deals. Normalizing of the relations between the UAE, Bahrain, you know, word on the street is maybe Morocco, maybe Sudan. I don't know. What do you think, Joel? Big week. Definitely big week for Israel and, and the Arab world. And, and kudos to the Israelis and, and the UAE and Bahrain for, for doing these deals. And to the Trump administration for uh, ushering them through. But I, I really think we need to be careful about the dynamic that's underway to ensure that we don't uh, overstate this. Uh, these are important deals for normalizing Israel in the Middle East. They, they help move it forward, but they are, are uh, lacking at the core hard issue in the region still, which is the Palestinian issue. And even the Bahraini and the Emirati uh, foreign ministers, when they spoke at the White House, they spoke about the need for peace on that issue as well. So I'm happy about it. I think it's good for the United States. It's good for these countries. I'm worried about the F-35 sale. We could talk yeah. more about that. I think it's going to have a hard, hard road to hoe with our national security community because there are worries about uh, sending this, this technology, frankly, to the UAE from a defense security perspective. Uh, and I also worry about what we're willing to trade uh, from the U.S. national perspective to get other countries to sign on uh, in, in supporting Israel. Uh, there are lots of issues that we need to be very cautious about and 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 be, be clear-headed. Uh, and I really do hope the Trump administration leans in on the Palestinian issue in ways that, that, uh, that help resolve that conflict. And, and Israelis, to close, I should say Israelis were we're pleased, certainly, but that's not what they're talking about in Israel right now. They're talking about how they're going back into lockdown because yeah. Prime Minister Netanyahu let Israelis out the homes too quickly. And now they've got the worst cases uh, uh, at, at rate of cases in the world. So um, a lot a lot going on there. But certainly I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to say positive things about the idea that Israel and these two countries have established good ties. You know, I, I also 
the a headline that jumped out at me today was that the UAE has uh, have some they're having some synergy with China in terms of vaccination distribution. UAE becoming the first country really that China has outsourced the vaccine to, uh, which I thought was interesting. Now, Brooks, let's talk about Palestine for a second because when yesterday when I interviewed the amba- the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, I asked him, you know, what is your message for to to the Palestinians? And he said, the train's leaving the station. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no, no, no doubt. There were there were two places where uh, you know this this uh, this peace treaty with uh, the UAE and Bahrain and Israel um, was not celebrated. One was in Ramallah, and one was in Tehran. And mm-hmm. two regimes are you know finding themselves uh, shunted more and more on the international stage, uh, and and isolated more and more. And I think the time of the Palestinians willfully uh, trying to sit on their hands and not take any meaningful step for peace, um, regardless of, of how many opportunities they have had and they have, they have passed on, uh, I think the time is they're getting the message loud and clear that the time is now. It's either going to move forward with you or without you. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens. There is no doubt in my mind uh, that if you're Mahmoud Abbas, um, you have zero incentive to do anything uh, in the short term because they're going to try and run out the clock and hope that, that President Trump loses and then deal with Joe Biden, who they think will be much more sympathetic to them. Uh, but the reality is they're going to be wrong again because President Trump is going to win, uh, and they're going to continue to find themselves uh, uh, without a chair once the music stops. And, and uh, ultimately, uh, their uh their ability to produce a meaningful deal for their people and to bring the kind of economic prosperity and the peace and security that the Palestinians truly want uh, is going to have to be done by um, overcoming the failure of, yeah. of the Palestinian leadership. They're going to have to step up and do something. Either this, I don't know that this generation can, but the next generation of leaders is going to have to do it. Matt, let me let me ask you about the F-35 issue uh, because as part of this deal. Uh, with the with the UAE, the U.S. has agreed to sell F-35s to to the UAE, and and some uh, have raised concerns that that might undercut Israel. Uh, Joel just alluded to it. Do you, do you have those concerns? How can the U.S. make sure that is Israel's national security is protected, uh, even as we are making good on our word to the UAE? Uh, look, I think there is a real reason to be concerned, but I think there is not a reason to be concerned when it comes to President Trump. Uh, everything he has said and done, and even with regard to the F-35 deal, is that uh, the United States will preserve Israel's qualitative military advantage. So even though that the UAE may have state-of-the-art technology, uh, the United States will ensure that Israel's military uh, capabilities are, are the most superior in the region in order for them to defend themselves. But also one thing to note uh, about the F-35, not every F-35 is created equal. And you can sell F-35, but you can strip out some of the critical avionics uh, that Israel has or that the U.S. has uh, that we don't share with other countries. So uh, just because it has, you know, the, the label F-35 on it, there's different different types of F-35s, different capabilities, different avionics, and it doesn't mean that we're, you know, selling them uh, the top-of-the-line, state-of-the-art model. I think uh, that's an important consideration, too. All right, I got it. My well, buddy Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group really stepped in it today. 
he was all over the the social media feeds. Did you guys see this? I got I got I got to get Joel he's to weigh in. Right. He's absolutely right, by the way. Oh, yeah. okay. Let me play the clip. Well, Let me well, play the clip. I, Let me oh, play the oh, clip. All right. Wait, 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 wait. Don't give it away. <laughs> Don't give it away. Wait. Here's Ian Bremmer. Play Ian Bremmer. Here we go. Surprise me. <laughs> Maruf, can we play Ian Bremmer? I, you know what? We're going to hold on. He deserves one more than Obama did at the time that Obama received it. Of course, that was a symbolic uh, uh, prize at that point. It was a hopeful prize. It was aspirational and it was overtly political. All right. So so there he was coming up. That was that was Ian Bremmer talking about the uh, Nobel Peace Prize for uh, Donald Trump and Barack Obama. I'm going to get the panel to think about that. They're, they already want to talk about it. More coming up next. Uh, I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You know, something that I didn't hit earlier that I wanted to, to mention off of the, uh, the uh, FOMC meeting uh, and the central bank and what they have to say now is that they're now expecting gross domestic product, GDP, to fall 3.7% this year. Back in June, they forecast that it was going to fall 6.5% in this year. So they shaved off nearly three percentage points of the drop. So the so the GDP contraction for this year um, is is not as severe as as what the Fed had been calling for. Uh, back in in the summer. So I I, I say that because I want to set it up for our next guest, Congressman David Schweikert, who is a a congressman for Arizona's 6th Congressional District. He's a Republican, and and the district includes uh, Phoenix suburbs, including Scottsdale, as well as sections of Maricopa County. And Congressman, you know, one of the things that I hear from the business community and and reading the Fed reports and, and the guidance from Fed Chair Jay Powell is they really want some more fiscal stimulus. They're saying it's crucial to, to continue to have this, this recovery occur. Do you think we're going to get it before November 3rd? Um, I hope so. But uh, what we're looking at, and, and I'm, I'm blessed to be one of the senior, well, the senior Republican uh, from the House on, on something called the Joint Economic Committee. Yep. I'm also on Ways and Means. So um, we geek out a lot on this. <laughs> and, and, and You're in the right place then. Yeah, but some of the math is fascinating because we're dealing with scenarios that we've never found in a textbook. And that is, do you want a general stimulus or do you also need to hit certain targeted industries, um, hospitality, leisure, airlines, that um, the recovery is just organically going to be much slower as it comes through the cycle? And then there's other industries um, that have actually – if not benefited, have stabilized much faster than we originally modeled. So I'm hoping there's um, some opportunity to do some stimulus out there for unemployment, for maybe the general population, but really also focus on where the long-term damage is. Because as we deal with the math, um, there's an intense concern. What job loss is permanent? And is there policy we can engage in to keep it from becoming permanent? And so I, I, when you talk to Republicans, when you talk to your Democratic colleagues, are they bullish? I mean, because we heard from Speaker Pelosi earlier in the hour, and she said that she's going to keep everybody there. 
until you all get a deal on fiscal stimulus. Obviously, you're up against the yeah. clock to keep the government open. But, I mean, are, are you bullish that this happens before November 3rd? Well, I want to back up first. Uh, hearing hearing um, the speaker's first quote about that, I think she was being rhetorical because they threw the gavel and Congress, the House has left town. The only one that can truly make this deal come together is Speaker Pelosi marching over to the Senate and then marching over to the White House. You need that leadership to do it. And the rhetoric that we're going to keep Congress open is great politically, but that's just not how it's functioning right now. Um, I think something will happen. My fear, though, is the bill from a couple months ago that had so many constituencies that are, that are political allies of the left and, you know, getting benefits. Will everyone sort of step up and say this isn't about the election year, uh, even though that seems pervasive? We need the resources to go with what shores up the economy so we can close this um, economic growth gap. So so do you think, I guess, yes or no, do you think we're going to get a fiscal stimulus before the election or is I, it going to have to wait till after? I, I, I believe something will happen, but be a little careful. I'm 58 years old with a five-year-old, so I'm pathologically <laughs> optimistic. <laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, that's uh, very, very interesting. I, I want to ask you about uh, the I the thought you'd find that funny. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, you know, where do you go with that? You know, I'm speechless. I'm a radio show host and I'm speechless. Congressman Schweikert's on the line. He's a Republican from Arizona. Uh, I got to ask you about the fires in Arizona uh, and what's happening out there. Obviously, you know a thing or two about about these horrific fires that have been ravaging uh, parts of the country and, and not just this year, but in years past. You know, the the way that the debate often gets framed by the left is is it's it's a matter of global warming and climate change versus uh, everything else. Where do you, as a Republican in, in Arizona, you know, how do you view this? How do how do your how do Republicans in your state view this? Because it's uh, been been really a, 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 a well, topic of national discourse. Yeah, and I may be the oddball here. Remember, I do taxes, trade, Medicare, finance for my specialty. But nine years ago, we lost 19 firefighters in in a horrible fire in Arizona. And so uh, I took up an interest in what makes uh, our forests blow up. And it turns out it's complicated. And and if you're not willing to understand that if you have someone that runs up and says it's global warming, or if you have someone that says it's only this or that, they're not understanding the scale. Um, some of the reviews of the huge fires we had in Arizona years ago said it was our failure to do thinning, our failure of almost 100 years of forest management, non-native species like grasses and things that we had never had to deal with that are now throughout the Southwest. Remember, people forget Arizona has the largest ponderosa pine forest in the country, and parts of that just blew up because there had been decades and decades and decades of fire load. But you have other issues around the world. In the Amazon, it's you know um, folks burning for cattle ranching and farming. In um, uh, Siberia, we have a real issue with fires there that could be from warming and part of the bog um, burning. And I wish, actually, those who want to talk about forest fires, that we just talk to those folks who actually specialize in the subject, do forest management, and we as a nation step up and understand those who say you can't cut down a tree, you're the ones killing our forests. And 
let's step up, come up with rational plans. And that's how you preserve nature. Well, you said something is, there that I want to follow up on. You said, for, for, so true. you're saying that it's important at some, at certain times it, it, for forest management, that certain trees be taken down because oh, absolutely. so that, so that they don't dry out and so that they don't start to have fire. Can you just explain that? Cause I don't think most people yeah, know that. For everyone nuance. that's listening, ha, ha, um, have you ever heard of a place called Flagstaff, Arizona? Yes. It's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. It's this great town. It's 7,000 some feet up in the mountains. And I have a book in my office that has a picture of this meadow from a hundred years ago and the picture of that meadow today. And on the side of the meadow, you see these pine trees. A hundred years ago, you could drive a wagon between the trees. Today, you couldn't, you, you could barely take an ATV through them. It's so thick. Today, the trees look sickly and unhealthy. A hundred years ago, they looked very healthy. What you're looking at is we've allowed overgrowth in that forest. There's been no thinning, no cleaning, um, large fire load. And now those trees are dying and struggling because they can't get enough sunlight. They can't get enough water. In many ways, we have loved our forests to death. And wow. one of the intense ironies from a decade ago, when we, when we had that huge fire and lost the firefighters, there was a national attempt and a local attempt to go in and do some thinning we were being sued. The state and the Forest Service were being sued to stop it. Now that forest is gone. Wow. wow. Um, and so it's, you almost wish you had the professionals and the adults in charge. And those of us who are more in the political class ask us to shut up. <laughs> and those in the environmental community that don't want to cut down a tree ask them also to do the same. And let's let the people that actually are the experts on forest health be the ones that we I follow. like that quote. I like that quote. I want it for the intro, Barato. We got to cut that quote. Us, <laughs> us politicians should shut up. I like that. Yeah, I like now that. you know why I seem to annoy everyone. <laughs> Congressman David Schweikert, a Republican from Arizona, 6th Congressional District. Good luck with the, uh, the distance learning with the five-year-old. I hope everything's oh, going well. Is it? You are very kind. Thank you. Bye yep. now. All right. I'll talk to you later. Congressman David Schweiker, he is a uh, representative from Arizona's 6th Congressional District, Republican District. That includes Phoenix suburbs, Scottsdale, and sections of Maricopa County. Uh, coming up next, what's on the panel's radar? And uh, we're going to talk about that Ian Bremmer, that Ian Bremmer viral moment from our friend at the Eurasia Group and the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Kevin Zerilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I can't stop reading about these wildfires. I mean, it is just really, really remarkable to see what, what's going on out there. And then, you know, you factor in again. I, I go back to the issue of public land versus private land. I mean, how do you manage all of the lumber, all of the trees and all of these uh, parts of the country when some of the land's owned publicly, some of it's owned private. I mean, that's that's a whole legal quagmire. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's 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 a really, really intense, intensely complicated 
complicated issue. Matt Brooks is with us, Republican strategist, executive director of the Republican Jewish Coalition. Joel Rubin, Democratic strategist, former deputy assistant secretary for legislative affairs at the State Department. Who has me on speaker? Turn me off speaker, please. And Joel, who do you think is going to be secretary of state in a Biden administration? Who's on the short list? Oh, goodness. I was so ready for other questions. No, I, I, <laughs> um, well, you know, I think, I think there are several names that are out there. Uh, Susan Rice clearly is one. Senator Chris Coons is another. Yep. I think a long shot Senator Chris Murphy um, mm. is a name that is, is a real popular one in the party. Um, and then, of course, there's some excellent people that have been around uh, the vice president, like Tony Blinken and 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 others. Um, and Senator well. Coons has been so around. Has been around. Uh, Senator Coons has been around for uh, Biden for a while. Delaware, you yeah, got Del- it. Delaware, Delaware. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was a that was <laughs> and, and, a, a, and a real a real leader uh, uh, on a lot of the, a lot of the important national security issues across the board. He. He knows how to work it on a bipartisan level. He's got strong views as a strong Democrat and uh, a, a real leader on, on Africa issues and, and Africa, yeah. issues that, that oftentimes aren't focused on publicly, but that really do matter for America's long-term position. All right. So here's what's on my radar. And oh, by the way, Senator Coons is going to be on my show tomorrow. So tune in because we're going to ask him about all that. And of course, Biden's town hall tonight. We'll ask him about the economic rollout. That's tomorrow. Senator Chris Coons. Here's what's on my radar. Tom Keene. My good friend, my mentor, Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance, had Ian Bremmer on and from the Eurasia Group. We played it earlier, but he asked him about whether or not President Trump should get a Nobel Peace Prize. Take a listen to what Ian Bremmer told my friend Tom Keen. I can say he deserves one more than Obama did at the time that Obama received it. Of course, that was a symbolic uh, uh, prize. At that point, it was a hopeful prize. It was aspirational, and it was overtly political. <laughs> Ian Bremmer, who is one of the smartest geopolitical minds, really going viral with <laughs> "Leave it to Tom Keen." All right, so I want I want to get the panel's reaction. Joel, here's the question to you, and then Matt, when he's finished, go jump in. Was Ian Bremmer right? The legendary Ian Bremmer. Ian Bremmer was confused and, and completely <laughs> off balance. And, and it, it, it's, it's, it's astounding that he would advocate for, for uh, President Trump, who, who has been lying to Americans about the severity of COVID. We've got a couple hundred thousand people dead now, Americans, on his watch for a Nobel Prize. I, I just don't get it. And, and there's this sort of uh, uh, re- revisionist history going on that somehow Barack Obama, who actually did build international agreements to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons, somehow wasn't deserving of a Nobel Prize. I, I just find it astounding that he stepped right into it uh, and clearly a very confused uh, analyst right there. Matthew? I think he was absolutely 100% spot on. <laughs> and, and I would remind Joel, I would remind Joel, we're talking about the Nobel Peace Prize, not the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Science. Uh, this is about creating mm. uh, and having a vision that brings a paradigm shift uh, to one of the most volatile regions in the country. It changes the landscape of the Middle East. Uh, if this is not deserving of the Nobel Peace Prize, I don't know what is. Uh, certainly the one speech that Barack Obama gave that got him a Nobel Prize, 
this far surpasses that because it's actually something tangible uh, and real. Having said that, by the way, I believe the Nobel Committee, there's about zero chance that they're going to give Donald Trump. Uh, they would rather commit <laughs> Harry Carey uh, than give uh, Donald Trump the Nobel Peace Prize. So uh, he absolutely okay, well, That's what we all thought. You know what? Stranger things have happened. We all thought the Eagles were going to beat the Washington football team. No! I know. I know. I couldn't. I couldn't. We literally lost to a team. We lost to a team with no name. You know, and oh. hey, it's a great metaphor. I got to I see. I know Barat is like, come on, Kevin, rein it back in. You were so focused. You've been so focused these past few episodes. But I just got to say, if you Steelers need football. hold on, hold on. I have if you need a metaphor for 2020 great first quarter and then bam, just all great downhill from there. Great first half. Great ah. first half. Yeah, well. All right, what's on your radar, Brooks? Well, first of all, um, on my radar, I, uh, this weekend is the uh, High Holy Days for the for the Jewish faith. Yes. It's Rosh Hashanah. It's the start of our new year, so I want to wish happy my new friend uh, Joel Rubin a very happy and a healthy uh, new year. And Thanks to all our uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish listeners out there, uh, happy and a healthy <laughs> new year. Um, the thing that's on the on my radar screen, Kev, is is and, and it's, it's talked about a lot, but it's the the practicality of, of the the challenges are starting to hit home now, which is the whole vote by mail issue. In terms of what we're doing, for instance, we had an entire schedule of direct mail designed to hit uh, voters uh, from the windows when you could request an absentee ballot to when they were due and when they were going to be um, uh, turned in. Pennsylvania just today has kept moving the date back of, of their vote by mail because they're not equipped to handle it. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of problems with uh, absentee voting and vote by mail this cycle uh, in this election. And it's going to be uh, not just a headache for uh, operatives and, and uh, folks like us on the front lines of campaigns <laughs> uh, to get our jobs done, but it's going to be a mess for the, you know, for the, for the election. All right. All right. Yeah. No, I, that, yeah. Thousand percent agree. It's going to be very interesting to cover all of that. Uh, Joel, what's on your radar? Yeah. And, and back at you, Matt, and, and to all the listeners, happy holidays, hugs, math, uh, for a, a sweet new year in a very difficult calendar year. Um, Look at you two I, I getting really, along. Go ahead. I, you know, we got to do it. <laughs> so I, 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 I want to build on what Matt said, though, in a, a bit of a different angle. And it's really popping, which is this idea that we will not know who won the election on Election Eve. That doesn't mean we won't know who won. But that just means that everyone needs to take a deep breath that on election night, it's quite likely nobody will be called a winner. And we should ensure that we let every vote get counted that should be counted. And that might take some time, just like it did in 2000. It took five-ish weeks. Uh, and I think for the media and others, and there's a lot of talk about this now, about how to, and Facebook and social media, how to talk about the election, not as a one-night event, but as what may be a multiple-day-slash-week event. And that's really popping quite a bit uh, in, in the, the political conversation about how to ensure that we protect that evening and don't bias one way or the other. And make well, sure all the votes are counted. Well, in honor of Constitution Day, which, by the way, it is Constitution Day, we should dust off our old copies of the Constitution because the Constitution says that the, the, you would have to, to have a new – you'd have to ratify the Constitution in order to get 
a uh, to change the inauguration date, but Congress has the ability to change the date of the electoral college vote. And actually, Senator mm-hmm. Marco Rubio, a Republican from Florida, has already introduced legislation that would make that would push back the date of the electoral college vote to the, the like the first week in January, just in preparation for what could be a very interesting. <laughs> election season my thanks to matt brooks my thanks to joel rubin my thanks to you for listening that does it for me tomorrow senator chris coons plus part one of a very cool conversation if i do say so myself with dr mark hyman he's going to talk to you about why eating healthy and investing in health and wellness is actually better to help communities save money that's tomorrow don't miss it i'm kevin cerilli you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.